since we have been together. We started this chapter of 2 Kings. We started in chapter 22 and chapter 23, and it's really outlining for us the, the life and the ministry and the reign of Josiah, uh, one of Israel's greatest kings. And in my opinion, um, I think of Josiah and, and David as being my two favorite kings of, of all of Israel, all of the northern tribes and the Judah. I think of David being my favorite for different reasons, but I love Josiah because he was just an amazing young man, started off his reign at eight years old. Can you imagine that? While most kids are playing with Tonka trucks, he's got the, the weight of the country on his shoulders, and certainly he had many... Um, men and around him that were older and could guide him through the process of being a king. But we looked at his life. We began to look at it before we um, had uh, uh, Good Friday and, and all of that. And so let's get back into it. I, uh, the last time we were together, we looked at, I picked really seven different passages of Scripture that really kind of summarize the life of Josiah. And as you can tell, we've already looked at some of these. Uh, we've looked at Second uh, Chronicles chapter 34. Uh, that just spoke of Josiah at 16 years of age, the eighth year of his reign, seeking the Lord, uh, and then at 20 years of age, in 12 years of his reign, or in the 12th year of his reign, he began to purge Judah and Jerusalem of its idols. Because up to this point, uh, his father, Manasseh, and his forebears, going back, um, they were, many of them were idolaters. And so finally, when Josiah comes on the scene, he's got this, this country, this nation that is in such a mess spiritually, and yet God used just one person. And I want to encourage you with that because, yes, he was a king and he had influence, but do you know that even you and I, as one person, we can make a difference in everywhere, everywhere we go, whether it's, whether it's in our family or whether it's at our workplace, or your, your school, wherever it is, seek to be like Christ and allow Christ to live in and through you. And don't be afraid, be bold, but be, be loving. And there's the, the key to it all, right, is be bold, but be loving. How can you be bold and loving? Well, it, 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 it's possible. Being bold is not hard for some people. They can just be really harsh and bold. Ah, but to be loving and bold is a whole different matter. And see, that's when the Spirit of God is at work. When you can be loving and you can have a smile on your face and tell somebody the truth, and they know that you love them, you're not just being critical of them. Does that make sense? And see, that's everything, folks. And, and, and Josiah was one of these characters. You know, he comes on the scene, and he, his, his, everything from his past has been completely... Uh, it's just such a mess. And he's got a huge, huge mess to clean up. And God touched his heart. And think of the patience of God. He comes into his reign at eight years old. And then at 16 years old, he starts to, his heart is moving toward God. And then at 12 years of age, or I'm sorry, at, uh, at 20 years of age, 12 years into his reign, he begins to purge Judah and Jerusalem of its idols. Think of that, folks, at 20 years of age. What were you doing when you were 20 years old? I can tell you what I was doing at 20, and I'd be too ashamed to say it. There was nothing good about my 20s, or at least my early 20s. 
But we looked at that in 2 Chronicles chapter 34, 1 and 2, and then 2 Kings 23, uh, verses 26 to 27. Really just, and, and again, this is just a recap of those chapters, God's promise of judgment. And even though Josiah was a great man of God, God said that there was coming a time of judgment. And even though Josiah was a man of incredible character, and God was going to give him a long reign, 31 years, and it was a good reign for him and for the nation of Israel. It was a, he's called a reformer king because he had to reform all of the business that his forefathers had done and all the idolatry. And he had to undo all that. And that took a lot of courage. And it took some time. In 2 Chronicles 34, verses 3 through 7, we looked at Josiah rooting out the idolatry. And then Hilkiah, the high priest, going into, as they're removing the junk, and I literally mean junk, out of the house of God, out of the temple, all of the idols, as they're removing all of this stuff, it was a huge project, Hilkiah, the high priest, finds a copy of the book of the law, meaning the Pentateuch, the five books of Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. He finds a copy, and it's like everybody's excited because no, it makes you wonder if there's any other copies around. But they found it, and it was like gold to them. And Shaphan, the scribe, he comes and he brings it to the, you know, to the, um, to finally to the king, and, and the king is all excited. Hilkiah gives it to Shaphan. Shaphan takes it before King Josiah. He begins to read those things, and Josiah's heart just breaks. And as a sign of grief over all the things, all the sins that they had done as a nation, he tears his clothes as a grief. That's what the Jews did when they were grieving. You and I, we just grab some Kleenex and put our head in our lap. They would actually tear their clothes. And then we looked at 2 Kings chapter 22, verses 3 through 20. And in that, which we looked at when we first got together, uh, Josiah was now 26 years of age, and he began to repair the temple. Now that he had removed all of the idolatrous junk that was inside of it, he begins to uh, repair the temple and then employ those with the skills to do the work to clean it up. And while they're cleaning it out, obviously they find the book of the law, and then Josiah asks, um, actually, I think I just read that. Josiah asks for Hilkiah and Shaphan and others to inquire of the Lord for him. And then they go and they consult a prophetess. I don't know why, you know, they didn't consult a prophet, a male prophet, but it, regardless, there's a woman by the name of Huldah, the prophetess. And so they, they visit her, and, and she has some really interesting things to say. In fact, uh, it's not even her that's saying it. Uh, back in chapter 22, of, beginning in verse 15, so Josiah sends this embassage to Huldah the prophetess, and she says, Thus says the Lord God, Tell the man who sent you to me, thus says the Lord, Behold, I will bring calamity on this place, speaking of Jerusalem, and on its inhabitants, all the words of the book which the king of Judah has read, meaning the, the book of the law, because they have forsaken me and burned incense to other gods that they might provoke me to anger with all the works of their hands. Therefore, God is speaking through this woman. He, she, he says to her to, to share, Therefore, my wrath shall be aroused against this place and shall not be quenched. Meaning judgment is coming. There's no way to stop it. And you know, that's a dangerous thing. 
When God comes to the, when, you, when, when a person or a nation crosses the Rubicon, we've talked about this a lot because this whole Second Kings, First Kings has all been about that. And now that the northern ten tribes have been taken into captivity, now Judah is getting ready. But they're going to have a bright ray of sunshine for about 31 years. That's quite a long time, wouldn't you say? Think about 31 years. And that was Josiah's reign. Think back, subtract 31 years from your life right now and think about how much time has passed. And that was the time that God gave them the grace. He already told them and he told the prophetess, judgment is coming. But notice, here is the, the word of grace. And aren't you, God, aren't you glad God is a God of grace? Can everybody nod just to, so I know everybody's awake? All right, there we go. All right. So you just had dinner, so you're kind of like, uh, whoa. <laughs> so, yeah, I hear you. <laughs> so, but notice the, the word of grace that God gives. He goes, but as for the king of Judah who sent you to inquire of the Lord, in this manner you shall speak to him. So God, using the, the, the prophetess, says to Josiah, thus says the Lord God of Israel, Concerning the words which you have heard, because your heart was tender and you humbled yourself before the Lord, when you heard what I spoke against this place and against its inhabitants, that they would become a desolation and a curse, and you tore your clothes and you wept before me, I also have heard you, says the Lord. Surely, therefore, here is such a wonderful thing. God says, surely, therefore, I will gather you to your fathers and you shall be gathered to your grave in peace. And your eyes shall not see all the calamity which I will bring on this place. And so they brought back word to the king. Isn't that exciting? Is God a God of grace or is he not? Everybody has this idea. And you talk to people on the street or you talk to people who don't come to Calvary Chapel where they don't get in your, into the Word or whatever, and you, you talk to them about the God of the, you know, the Old Testament, and they will think, oh, he was so cruel and mean, and just you know, stomping on people. And it's like, you know, he's not. He's the same. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. He hasn't changed. And if God wanted to scrub out Jerusalem and Judah, he had every right to right at that moment. But to whom much is given, much is required. He gave them a lot. He's giving them even more time to come around. And, and God, in doing that, God knew that this young man, Josiah, would be a bright light for the nation of Israel. And unfortunately, that bright light was 31 years. And then it got snuffed out. He died prematurely. We'll see that tonight. And then from then on, it was just a plummet. Josiah or Josiah's son and his son and then it wasn't long Zedekiah and then finally they were taken captive the whole place was burned down the temple was destroyed but notice let's stay on the bright light part of it okay because I don't know about you uh, it's nice to talk about some good news rather than bad news so let's look at uh, chapter 23 it says, Now the king sent to them, uh, sent them to gather all the elders of Judah and Jerusalem to him. And then the king went up to the house of the Lord with all the men of Judah and with all the inhabitants of Jerusalem and the priests and the prophets and all the people, both small and great. And notice, he read in the hearing, 
In their hearing, all the words of the book of the covenant which had been found in the house of the Lord. Notice that the natural inclination of Josiah was not to hide that truth in his own heart, but rather to share it, to make everybody accountable to it. And and that's a a wonderful thing because now the truth, they're going to hear the truth. They probably haven't heard it in a long time. And now Josiah is going to share it and everyone's going to be affected just like he was. If their hearts were right, they would follow this really great king, this good example. And it's going to be a nationwide revival, one like Israel had never seen. They're going to have a Passover unlike any other Passover they have ever had. And Josiah would be at the helm. Notice in the second half of that second verse there, it says, and he read in their hearing all the words of the book, right? And so... We know this, that Romans tells us that faith comes by what? Faith comes by hearing, and hearing the word of God. Faith comes by hearing, not by seeing. It's always by hearing. I love that. And I would encourage you to be really careful about the things that you see, especially religious movies about Jesus or about the Bible, because you'll remember what you see. Your eyes can remember things, and but... The Bible says that faith comes by hearing. And so as we read the Bible, you'll recognize if you know the Bible well, you'll be able to watch a movie about Jesus or about the apostles or something like that. And you're like, well, that's not in the Bible. Well, that's not in the Bible. So why are you watching it? (laughs) When they're making up stuff that doesn't even make sense, and sometimes they even take it in some really crazy ways, like The Chosen. That's not really a Christian show, folks. And that may upset some of you. That whole program is a mess. Really think about it. So verse 3, Then the king stood by a pillar, and he made a covenant before the Lord to follow the Lord and to keep his commandments and his testimonies and his statutes with all of his heart and all of his soul to perform the works, the words of this covenant that were written in this book. And notice, and all the people took a stand for the covenant. And I love that. They, they took a stand for it. So the, this pillar that uh, he stood by was a customary place in the inner courtyard of the temple where the king would address the people. And as you, many of you know, there were two pillars in front of the temple, and, and they were freestanding uh, pillars that were made by Solomon. One was called Boaz on the left, and on the right was Yaquin. And um, so it could be one of these pillars, or it could be a platform that he would stand on to address the people. We know that Solomon had built such a platform to elevate him. It tells us that in Second Chronicles 6, verse 13, where he would get up on this platform to just elevate himself above so his voice would carry over the crowd. But I love, and all the people took a stand for the covenant. <laughs> Good godly leadership encourages people to follow, doesn't it? When there's a, a good leader, people like to follow people who are, who are doing the right things. And it registers in your heart, doesn't it, when somebody's doing the right thing and you want to get behind it. You want to get behind it. So verse 4, And the king commanded Hilkiah the high priest, the priests of the second order, and the doorkeepers, to bring out the temple of the Lord 
bring out of the temple of the Lord all the articles that were made for Baal and for Asherah and for all the host of heaven. And he burned them outside Jerusalem in the fields of Kidron and carried their ashes to Bethel. So remember I said they went into the temple and they're just bringing out all of this stuff from Baal worship, which was a Canaanite uh, deity that they would worship. And Asherah, she was a fertility goddess of the Canaanites. And they would have all this filthy stuff, all these idols and, and horrible things that they were doing. And finally, he's bringing it all out into the Kidron. And if you've been to Jerusalem or been to Israel, you'll notice that there's a, there's a valley between the, the Temple Mount and then there's a valley, the Kidron Valley, and then the Mount of Olives. And right in that valley, there used to be a river or a stream going through there. It's no longer there. But he took these things out there in those fields in the, in, the, in the valley there, and he would burn them and burn them to ashes, bringing to no remembrance of them whatsoever. And, um, and he took them to Bethel, and we'll, we'll see why later in the chapter, why he, re, he took those ashes to Bethel. But verse 5, then he removed the idolatrous priests whom the kings of Judah had ordained to burn incense on the high places in the cities of Judah and in the places all around Jerusalem. And those who burned incense to Baal, to the sun, to the moon, to the constellations, and to all the host of heaven, it was just a, a, a it was just a, a new wave, a new age central depository of everything. Anybody been to Key West? <laughs> Raise your hand if you've been to Key West, Florida. Okay, just a few of us. You know what Key West is like. Some Key West, parts of Key West are okay, but all around Key West are palm readers, tarot card readers, all kinds of weird stuff. I mean, it's like a zoo down there, especially after 6 o'clock when the sun starts to go down. It's like all the demons come out. And it's a really different place from in the morning when you go. But um, verse 6, he brought out the wooden image. Notice a very specific wooden image from the house of the Lord. And this was... Uh, again, a, an image, a wooden pole, and it was basically a, a phallic symbol of the goddess Asherah, who was this goddess of the Canaanites. And, and, and it was a wooden thing that was made in that shape. And, and so he brought that out to the Kidron outside of Jerusalem, burned it in the brook Kidron, ground it to ashes again, threw, it, threw its ashes on the graves of the common people. And then he tore down the ritual booths of the perverted persons that were in the house of the Lord, where the women wove hangings for the wooden image. And so what we have here is uh, perverted persons is speaking, it literally is a male prostitute, a male prostitute for other men. Is, and, and that's the idea, a homosexual person. And that's what is spoken of here. And the women, these hangings that they would do, they would have these um, uh, pavilions, and the women would uh, create these tapestries to go over the outside of the pavilions. And inside the pavilions, obviously, are all these lewd acts that they would do to worship their false gods. And, and that's really what was uh, happening there. But, you know, you know, in our culture, you know, this, this would be called, they would call God hate. Hate. He's, he's, he's bringing hate speech, right? <laughs> because he's, he's talking about perverted persons. In the, in the original language, it's a homosexual, male. In our culture, that's going to throw us in jail at some point. It's already doing it in Canada. You can't speak about this stuff in Canada. But you know what? God loves the homosexual. 
He loves the heterosexual who's in fornication. Fornication is fornication, follow? He loves the person, but he hates the sin. And that's the thing we have to remember. God hates the sin. And see, somehow, we've, we, the church, we've divorced that because we don't understand, many people don't understand homosexuality. It kind of repulses them because, you know, most people aren't attracted to the same sex. And so it's something that we don't understand, and therefore we fear it, we don't like it. We, we tend to have a, a harder time with that than a male and a female sleeping around. You follow? But God loves that person. They're just looking for love in all the wrong places. He loves them, but he hates the sin. He loves the heterosexual fornicator, but he hates the sin. In Genesis, it, it tells us to be fruitful and multiply. He made male and female to be fruitful and multiply. You can't be fruitful and multiply unless you're male and female. Follow me? And a male cannot be pregnant. Amen? <laughs> it can't happen. Anyway... Verse 8, and he brought all the priests from the cities of Judah, and he defiled the high places where the priests had burned incense. And when it talks about him defiling those high places, he would burn, uh, he would burn uh, incense, or he would burn in the, the priests, um, and we'll find out that later when he gets to Bethel. He actually burned the bones of the priests that were offering these false, to these false gods. He would actually burn their bones on that altar and defiling the altar. And, um, and, and that'll be later. But he defiled the high places where the priests had burned incense from Geba to Beersheba. Also, he broke down the high places at the gates, which were at the entrance of the gate of Joshua, the governor of the city, which were to the left of the city gate. And, you know, as we go through this, aren't you amazed at just the detail that we have here? Because a lot of people think that this is just um, a story or this really wasn't real. But as you read this, it's defining very specific places, isn't it? It's, it's telling us very specifically where these things are because they were very real. The, the, the Bible is real. Everything in it is real. You can put your trust in the Word of God. But let me ask you, do you trust the Word of God? Or do you like some things and then you tear out other parts of the Bible, you know, and you're like, I don't like that. Or do you believe it all? Because Jesus put his stamp of approval on everything here. He did. And if he is God and we believe him, then this is his word. He's able to communicate to us, amen? If he's God, he's able to move on the hearts of people to write these things down and also to allow his word to be preserved over hundreds and even a few thousand years. And he's done a very good job at that. Haven't you seen that? He's preserved it for us. It is the word of God. It's the only true thing you have in your life. Everything else around you, not so much. But the word of God abides forever, and it's true. And you can bank everything on it. You don't have to make, a, you don't have to make a, certainly don't be ashamed of it. Don't make, uh, make up stuff to cover for it. It's the truth. And the more time goes on, the more it becomes even truer. <laughs> Because things are, the, the world is, is playing out things where it's like, I can't believe it. The Word of God told us that. And here, here we are. And we are at that place. We're getting closer and closer to the return of Jesus for the church. Are you looking forward to that? 
Looking forward to it. So verse 9, nevertheless, the priests. Notice, even though all this revival is going on, this reformation, nevertheless, the priests of the high places did not come up to the altar of the Lord in Jerusalem, but they ate unleavened bread among their brethren. So here they are, these these, uh, certain priests. They weren't doing their priestly duties, but they were enjoying the priestly provisions. And what's interesting to me is God refers to these priests in Ezekiel's prophecy. Speaking of a time yet future even to us in the millennial reign of Christ. I want to share something with you just to encourage you. Because Ezekiel, um, by the Spirit of God, God is talking about these priests at this time, who went after these false gods. And they were evidently, you know, because they, 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 they had these faults and, and issues, but let me just read to you. You might want to put off to the margin of your Bible, Ezekiel 44, verses 10 through 14, and let me just read it to you. I would encourage you to read the whole chapter, but speaking of these priests, look at how gracious God is. Now, these are Levites, and, 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 and at, there were times in, in Judah's history where they weren't following the Lord, but yet God loved them, and he gave them a special place. And he's even going to give them a special place in the millennial kingdom when they are resurrected. They're all dead now. They've been dead for hundreds of years. But God is going to resurrect them because there's a resurrection when Jesus comes to the earth Daniel 12, verse 2 tells us that the Old Testament saints will be raised at that time. And that includes these priests who weren't following the Lord, and rather they were following and and serving Baal. But notice what happens. Let me just read it to you. And And here it is, Ezekiel, speaking of an event of the millennial reign that's, you know, um, distant from us now, yet... Maybe not too distant. We'll find out. But the Levites who went far from me, verse 10, when Israel went astray, who strayed away from me after their idols, they shall bear their iniquity, yet they shall be ministers in my sanctuary. Now, he, Ezekiel's talking about a sanctuary that doesn't exist yet. Because the temple had been destroyed in 586. And Ezekiel was contemporary at that time. He himself got taken captive into Babylon as well. And he's writing from there, speaking of another temple that's going to come yet in the future. And it is the millennial temple that uh, chapters 40 through 47 of Ezekiel detail specifically how it's going to look and everything. But notice what he says about the priests. He says, yet they shall be ministers. Even these ones who strayed away from me after their idols, they shall bear their iniquity. Verse 11, yet they shall be ministers in my sanctuary as gatekeepers of the house and ministers of the house. They shall slay the burnt offering and the sacrifice, notice, for the people. They shall stand before them to minister to them because they ministered to them before their idols and caused the house of Israel to fall into iniquity. Therefore I have raised my hand in an oath against them, says the Lord God, that they shall bear their iniquity and they shall not come near me to minister to me 
as priest, nor come near any of my holy things, nor into the most holy place, but they shall bear their shame and their abominations which they have committed. Nevertheless, I will make them keep charge of the temple for all its work and all that has to be done in it. Is God a God of grace? So even these priests of Levi who have died, God's going to give them an opportunity in the millennial reign to serve. But they're not going to serve in the holy place like the other priests. And you can read that chapter, and he talks, God talks about the men who, were, who followed him holy with all of their heart to do the right things. They shall serve me, God says. They shall stand before me. And, and all these pronouns are so specific. He says, these guys are going to serve them, the people, but these gems who didn't fall away from me, who didn't serve these other idols, they're going to serve me. They're going to be in the holy place and serve me. Do you see it? I love God because he's a God of grace. Even in this. So back in verse 10. And Josiah, it says, And he defiled Topheth, which is in the valley of the son of Hinnom, that no man might make his son or his daughter pass through the fire to Molech. And Molech was this god that they would heat up in, 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 in this valley of Topheth. And it was in the southernmost part of Zion, which is right around the corner. There's, a, there's, a, there's a, uh, an area right to the south of Zion. And you can visit it today. And there's a road that actually goes around it. But back at that time, they would have these idolatrous practices where they would take and sacrifice children postpartum right on the altar of this molten image and the child would incinerate and they would hear the cries of the, of the child and then the worshipers would scream louder to worship their God to cover up the screams of the child. And we're not that far off, are we, in America? Then he removed, so he removed this place called Topheth. And then he removed, verse 11, the horses that the kings of Judah had dedicated to the sun at the entrance to the house of the Lord by the chamber of Nathan Melech, the officer who was in the court. And he burned the chariots of the sun with fire and the altars that were on the roof, the upper chamber of Ahaz, which is his great-grandfather, I believe it was, or his great-great-grandfather, and the altars which Manasseh had made in the two courts of the house of the Lord. The king broke down and pulverized there, threw their dust into the brook Kidron. And don't you just love this kid? I, I think of him just, you know, being so filled with the Spirit of God. He's just taking everything that was against God and just pulverizing it into powder. I love that. And do you think God was upset with that? Today, they would probably lock the guy up. But he had such a love for God, he pounded it all into powder and he had the right to because he was the king over Jerusalem and over Judah. He had the right to do it. So the king, verse 13, defiled the high places that were east of Jerusalem, which are on the south of the Mount of Corruption. The Mount of Corruption is speaking of the Mount of Olives. So for those who are in Israel, right at the, at the southern part of David's uh, citadel where the Zion would be, you look over east... Uh, and, and there's the Mount of Olives. Well, the southernmost part of that is where 
this occurred. It's called the Mount of Corruption, which Solomon, notice verse 13, king of Israel, had built. And so Solomon, later in his life, remember he had a thousand different women in his life, and when he got older, they turned his heart against the Lord, and Solomon built for Ashtoreth the abomination of the Sidonians, and he built an, an altar for Chemosh, the abomination of the Moabites, and for Milcom, the abomination of the uh, people of Ammon. So Solomon built these places for idol worship on the south of the Mount of Olives. And right in your margin of your Bible, 1 Kings chapter 11, 4 through 7. 1 Kings 11, 4 through 7. Right there off to the side of verse 13. Let me read it to you. It says, For it was so, and this is speaking back when Solomon was king, that when Solomon was old, that his wives turned his heart after other gods. And his heart was not loyal to the Lord as God, and as was the heart of his father David. For Solomon went after Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and after Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites. Solomon did evil in the sight of the Lord and did not follow the Lord as did David his father. And so Solomon, um, and then Solomon built a high place for Chemosh, the abomination of Moab, on a hill that is east of Jerusalem. And for Molech, the abomination of the people of Ammon. So all of these things, you can see why it's called the Mount of Corruption. Because that's where all of these altars were. Because he had many women in his life, and to appease them, and they were all foreign wives. And so they come to him, and you can imagine, you know, looking all cute and everything. You know, they want to worship their God. And he's like, oh, sure, just, you know, have my guys build it, and no problem. We got all the gold and the silver. We'll just build it. And he did, and he did that, and he kept doing it. He started off really well, but he didn't finish well. But Solomon did repent at the end of his life. And he wrote Ecclesiastes as a tribute to his madness. But notice that Josiah, verse 14, he broke in pieces the sacred pillars and cut down the wooden images, filled their places with the bones of men. Moreover, the altar that was at Bethel and the high place which Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who made Israel sin, had made both that altar and the high place, he broke down and he burned the high place and crushed it to powder and burned the wooden image. So, you know, would to God that we had young people today with this same kind of heart. But let me be clear about something. You know, um, I'm not talking about vandalizing and destroying public property, but rather tearing down of idols in their own hearts and in their own lives and getting rid of things in their lives that oppose God and that hinder them in their relationship with God. You're, you're within license if, if something belongs to you to get rid of it, right? This is not speaking. I'm not talking about going out and vandalizing things. We can't, by law, we can't see something that's horrible out in society and just go burn it, right? You, you can't do that. And God, you know, it's not your property. But if it's your property or stuff in your own house, then why don't you get rid of it? And that idol may not be a piece of wood or stone or metal. It could be something else. It could be a movie collection. It could be music. It could be something written in books or magazines. It could be a possession of yours that's keeping you from God. And instead of being a blessing to you, it's become an idol. You, you love it so much, you can't think of life without it. And everything is about that one thing. You polish it, you stain it, you do whatever you got to do. And it, there's a difference between taking care of something and then being sick about it. You understand what I'm saying? 
And that's the difference. But Josiah, verse 16, he turned. So he's in Bethel now. He saw the tombs that were on the mountain. And he sent and took the bones out of the tombs and burned them on the altar. He defiled it according to the word of the Lord, which the man of God proclaimed. So the man of God, who is he talking about here? You know, when you read the Bible and you see something like that, ask the question, man of God, who is he talking about? which the man of God pro- proclaimed, who proclaimed these words. And then he said, What gravestone is this that I see? And so the men of the city told him, It's the tomb of the man of God, who came from Judah and proclaimed these things, which you have done against the altar of Bethel. And he said, Let him alone. Let no one move his bones. And so they let his bones alone with the bones of the prophet who came from Samaria. What is that talking about? Well, when we were in... Um, 1 Kings chapter 13, we talked about this. So make a reference of that in your Bible because what had happened is here is a wonderful prophecy about Josiah given about 300 years before he was born during the reign of Jeroboam, Israel's first king. And remember, it was during the time, back at that time, when Jeroboam, being the first king of Israel, he erected, remember, those two golden calves and those two centers of worship, one in Bethel in the, in the middle of the country and one at Dan in the northern part of the country. And uh, in First Kings, I'm just going to read the first two verses and write it in your, in your uh, side of your Bible because you can go and read about who this man of God was. It says, Behold, a man of God went from Judah to Bethel. And remember, this was written 300 years before Josiah was born. Notice what God did. It says in 1 Kings 13, And behold, a man of God went from Judah to Bethel by the word of the Lord, and Jeroboam stood by the altar to burn incense, which he wasn't supposed to be doing. And then he cried out against the altar by the word of the Lord and said, O altar, altar, thus says the Lord, behold, a child, Josiah by name, shall be born to the house of David, and on you he shall sacrifice the priests, of the high places who burn incense on you, and men's bones shall be burned on you. And then 300 years later, it literally came to pass. Isn't that crazy? And think about this. Josiah's father is already passed from the scene, and he just happens to be there at the right time. He just happens to be at the right spot where these tombs are. He just happens to ask the right question, and somebody tells him, and he's like, Oh, and can you imagine going back? I, I, don't, I don't know if they had kings uh, written at that time, because kings, kings was written actually while they were in the Babylonian captivity, but somebody had it written down somewhere, and they remembered, they told him about it, and God called him by name 300 years before he was born. Isn't that crazy? Is God outside of time? Does he know what your day is going to be like tomorrow? I mean, this ought to encourage you, right? Because when you read, and this is just one. I have some other examples here, but we don't have time. I mean, even Cyrus. He called Cyrus in Isaiah chapter 44, verses 28 through 45, verse 7. God called Cyrus by name 150 years before he was even born. And he would be the guy, the Persian king, who would allow the Jews to leave in captivity, from captivity, to go back to Jerusalem. A pagan king. And God called him by name and told him what he was going to do. And he didn't even know it until after the fact. 
How big is your God? <laughs> I love that about the Lord. Don't you? You just, you can't fool him. He knows everything. And so don't even sweat anything. And I think that's one of the things, one of the great joys of being a Christian is knowing that our, you know, even Moses, I think it was in Psalm 90, Lord, teach us to number our days and, and, and help us to understand, you know, and, and, and then you read like Psalm 139 and it talks about, Lord, oh Lord, David speaking, he says, oh Lord, you know my words afar off, you know my thoughts afar off, before I even think of them, before I even speak, you know it altogether. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, I can't even attain it. I am totally blown that's the God that we serve. And I think sometimes we forget who God is. I forget who God is. I forget that he's almighty God. I, I tend to put him on the plane because we're so used to dealing with people and I'm, and I'm praying to God like I'm praying to an equal or, or somebody maybe more like a, an aged grandfather. Oh, but he's so much bigger and greater than all of that. He's the one who spoke it all into existence. He's the one you can go to with impossibilities. And you can pray. And he can bring those impossibilities to pass. And he has, and he continues to do it to this day. Is there anything too big for your God? Is there anything you're going through right now that's so big that you can't, you won't even ask him because you're afraid to, because you don't really think he can do it? Well, listen, he can do it if it's his will. He's not a genie in a lamp like it's like, you know, give me that lottery ticket. You know, the Powerball's up to six hundred and seventy-five million after taxes. I'm thinking like three fifty in cash. He's not a genie in a lamp. If it's his will. Verse nineteen. Now Josiah also took away all the shrines, the chapels, or the temples of the high places that were in the cities of Samaria, which the kings of Israel had made to provoke the Lord to anger. And he did to them according to all the deeds he had done in Bethel. And he executed all the priests of the high places who were there on the altars. Notice and burned men's bones on them, fulfilling the prophecy of the man of God back in First Kings thirteen. And then he returned to Jerusalem. <laughs> I like that. He did all these things, fulfilling prophecy, doing great things, and he returned to Jerusalem. No big deal. <laughs> Isn't that crazy? Sometimes the most significant things just seem to be so normal and natural. And, you know, like Jesus riding in to Jerusalem on a donkey. I'm sure at the time it seemed a little odd to people that he'd be riding in on a donkey, but it was just kind of a natural thing, and he arranged it, made arrangements, rode in the donkey, and they had no idea. Most of them didn't know that one of the most significant prophecies ever was fulfilled. In that moment, he said, this your day, but you didn't know it. And yet it was just... I wonder what the day was like. Do you ever wonder? You know, it's like if you could rewind and go back. I, I think like that because I'm a nut. I, I think back and I'm like, Lord, I would just like to go back at that moment and be invisible, standing there, watching this whole thing and taking, in the, taking it all in. Taking all in the people laying the palm fronds and, and taking it in, seeing you and maybe even walking alongside the donkey as you're going and just being amazed and, and, and feeling the temperature of the air and the smell of the the, the, the fragrant flowers or whatever, the desert, whatever it is that's going on, just smelling and taking that all in. And it was just so significant. And yet nobody, nobody knew it. 
Now, Josiah, um, so let's go to Second uh, Chronicles chapter 35, verses 1 through 27. We're going to go through this fairly quickly because we're going to take communion together tonight. I'd like to finish up uh, Josiah's reign. So we're going to look at Second Chronicles chapter 35. Notice it says, so, and this, after he's done all of this, now he keeps the Passover. And this is the most wonderful part of this, because this event at this time was so significant that the Spirit of God records for us, and, and I'll just, I'll let you hang there, and we'll get to it, because it's so beautiful. It says, now Josiah kept a Passover to the Lord in Jerusalem, and they slaughtered the Passover lambs on the 14th day of the first month. Why that day? Well, because it told us in Exodus 12, God told them when to slay the Passover lamb. And, they, and he told them the very next day they were to, to have the Feast of Unleavened Bread, right? And so he set priests in their duties, encouraged them for the service of the house of the Lord. Wow, that hadn't been done in a very long time. Not even in Judah. Everything was falling apart and decay. And now this guy comes along. He, he changes, cleans it all out, puts all the servants, all the Levites, back into the right places, in their right orders, doing the things that God had told them to do. This was a huge deal. And can you imagine the smile on God's face at this whole time? And he set the priests in their duties and encouraged them for the service of the house of the Lord. Then he said to the Levites who taught all Israel who were holy to the Lord. And he says this, put the holy ark in the house which Solomon, the son of David, king of Israel, built. It shall no longer be a burden on your shoulders. Now serve the Lord your God and his people Israel. So evidently, at some point, the ark of the covenant got taken out of the holy of holies and was probably filled with all this other idolatrous stuff from his father's and his grandfather. So now they put the ark in its rightful place, in the holy of holies. Prepare yourself, he says, according to your father's houses, according to your divisions, following the written instruction of David, king of Israel, and the written instruction of Solomon, his son. And stand in the holy place, according to the divisions of the father's houses, of your brethren, to the, 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 to the, um, the lay people, and according to the division of the father's house of the Levites, and so slaughter the Passover offerings, consecrate yourselves, and prepare them for your brethren, that they may do according to the word of the Lord by the hand of Moses. Verse 7, then Josiah gave the lay people lambs and young goats from the flock, all for Passover offerings, for all who were present, to the number of 30,000 as well as 3,000 cattle. These were from the king's possessions. So here is a young man who is not only worshiping God by ridding the temple and all the stuff from all the junk, but now he's got all these people. They haven't done this for a long time. And he's like, don't worry about the lamb and the, and the, the cows and everything else. I'm going to give them to you out of his own possessions. And think of that. If you and I were to be there on that Passover, there'd be a lot of blood flowing down the hill into the Kidron Valley, and it would freak most of us out. But God was saying, he's right on the money. <laughs> he's right on the money. We would all be grossed out and be running for the hills, and yet God was pleased. 
And even his leaders, they gave willingly to the people, to the priests, the Levites, Hilkiah, Zechariah, Jehiel, rulers of the house of God, gave the priests for the Passover offerings 2,600 from the flock and 300 cattle. Also Conaniah, his brother Shemaiah, and Nethanel, and Hashabiah, and Jael, and Josabad, chief of the Levites, gave to the Levites for Passover offerings 5,000 from the flock and 500 cattle. And so the service was prepared, and the priests stood in their places. And I don't know about you, but I read this sometimes, and I just get teary-eyed. I know it sounds a little nuts, but you think about how you know they've been without this for so long. They hadn't been doing the right thing for so many years, and now it's just like a flood. Probably the greatest moment in their history. Other than maybe David when he brought the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem, from Obed-Edom's house. That was a really wonderful day. This was probably one of those, probably two days in all of their history that was the best, arguably. And they slaughtered the Passover offerings, and the priests sprinkled the blood with their hands while the Levites skinned the animals. Then they removed the burnt offerings that they might give them to the divisions of the fathers' houses of the lay people to offer to the Lord, as it is written in the book of Moses. And so they did. Notice, everything was done by the book. And God was so pleased with this young man. He, he wasn't making things up. He was going by the book. He was worshiping God according to the way God wanted to be worshipped. See, we don't have the right to make things up and just do things. That, oh, well, I, just, I feel like doing something different today. Well, they didn't have that opportunity They didn't have that leisure to say, well, you know, I don't want to sacrifice a lamb today. I want to do something different. I want beef. I want fish. Enough of the sheep stuff, lamb chops. You know, um, but they didn't have, he was faithful. Also, they roasted the Passover offerings, verse 13, with fire according to the ordinance. But the other holy, holy offerings they boiled in pots in cauldrons and pans, and they, they divided them quickly among all the lay people. And then afterward, they prepared portions for themselves and for the priests. Because the priests, the sons of Aaron, were busy in offering burnt offerings and fat until nighttime. Therefore, the Levites prepared portions for themselves and for the priests, the sons of Aaron. And notice that they, 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 the priests, they served the people first, and then afterward, they prepared portions for themselves. It's always somebody else first and then them. Have you heard that acronym, JOY? In all of our Christian ministry, think of this. Jesus first, J, and then O for others. And then you, or Y, actually, for you. Where does that put us last? He's first, others are second, and I'm last. And that should be always the way it is in any ministry in the church. It's not about me, it's not about you, it's about Jesus, right? And the singers, verse 15, the sons of Asaph were in their places. So even the music was all in order, according to the command of David, Asaph and Heman and Jeduthun, the, the king's seer, also the gatekeepers were at each gate. They did not have to leave their position because their brethren, the Levites, prepared portions for them. So even while they're standing there and going through this huge thing, they were food was being brought to them so they could continue in their ministry. It was an amazing day. I, I, I almost wonder if it just rained from heaven and it was just the tears of God and joy for seeing what His people were doing and for, you know they were doing it right. 
And Josiah had an obedient heart. God loves an obedient heart, by the way. When we're obedient to him, it's like he, you're irresistible to him. And get carried away with that. Let your heart get carried away with that. He loves you, even when we're disobedient. But when you're obedient, it just puts the smile on the heart of God. And so, verse 16, All the service of the Lord was prepared the same day to keep the Passover and to offer burnt offerings on the altar of the Lord according to the command of King Josiah. And the children of Israel who were present kept the Passover at that time and the Feast of Unleavened Bread for seven days. And, there, and here's circle verse 18. Circle it, put a star by it, because this is a really awesome, awesome verse. There had been no Passover kept in Israel like that since the days of Samuel the prophet. And none of the kings of Israel had kept such a Passover as Josiah kept with the priests and the Levites, all Judah and Israel who were present, and all and the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And in the 18th year of the reign of Josiah, this Passover was kept. It was 621 B.C. And Josiah was 26 years of age. The 18th year of his reign. He came... He, he was eight years old when he first started. His 18th year was 26 years old. They had the biggest shebang you've ever seen. I just think that's beautiful, don't you? It's Thanksgiving. Giving thanks to God. And I think about what we're going to be able to do on May 19th. I'm just so looking forward to that day. Just to give thanks to the Lord for his faithfulness, how he's been faithful to all of us. And you have been a part of it. You have been contributing to all of that and many other things. But now, this building doesn't belong to me. It doesn't belong to Calvary Chapel, per se, even though we do own the whole complex, but it belongs to all of us. God has given it to us. Finally, in verse 20 through 27, this will be really quick, and then we'll take communion together. So after all this, now, this is the only mark on Josiah's life was this foolish thing that he did toward the end of it. You know, he was, um, he was a young man. He died prematurely, as we're going to see. And really unfortunate. I wonder how many years the Lord might have given him had he just stayed, kept his nose out of somebody else's business. Have you ever put your nose in somebody else's business? And then realize that you, you get hurt in the process because you stuck your nose in somebody else's business. I've done that. And I'm learning to stay out of things and not make anything my business that's not my business, right? Notice, after all this, after all of this, <laughs> when Josiah had prepared the temple, Necho, king of Egypt, came up to fight against Carchemish by the Euphrates, and Josiah went out against him. Now, Pharaoh Necho of Egypt was going to fight with the king of Assyria to go against... He was, so this is, what it, this is the way it was. So down here in Egypt, Necho, the king of Egypt, he's coming against uh, Babylon. Babylon is over here. Babylon is coming now. They've already taken over Nineveh in 612 B.C. The, the, the Chaldeans, the Babylonians, and the Medes, they had already... Uh, destroyed Nineveh 
in 612 BC. So now in 609 BC, all these people who had fled, who weren't destroyed in that slaughter at Nineveh in 612, finally many of them move over to Carchemish, which is even further west and then they settle by the Euphrates. And so you still got an Assyrian uh, conglomerate there at, uh, at Carchemish. So now Babylon is now coming because now that Nineveh has fallen, Syria is on its way out as being a world power. And who's the next big guy on the block? Nebuchadnezzar. <laughs> so Nebuchadnezzar comes after them. He goes all the way to Carchemish. And now the Assyrians are going to be attacked by the Babylonians Necho, the king of Egypt, he gets wind of it, and both of them, the Assyrians and the Egyptians, they hate Babylon. So Pharaoh Necho says, well, I'm going to help the Assyrians. And so he makes his way up the coastline or comes by ship. We don't really know how they got there, but they come up to Carchemish at 609 BC, and they start this battle. And, and, and Josiah is thinking to himself, he would rather have, uh, we don't know exactly his motivation. Maybe he had an affinity for Babylon more than the Assyrians. We don't really know. And maybe he didn't want them to defeat the Babylon. We don't really know, but he got in the way. So he goes up to Megiddo, and we've been to Megiddo, right, Kathy? Remember Megiddo? We were up there. And right at that area, Pharaoh Necho comes in, and then Josiah and his army come out in battle. But he, verse 21, speaking of Necho, sent messengers to Josiah, verse 21, saying, What have I to do with you, king of Judah? I have not come against you this day, but against the house with which I have war. In other words, I've come against, I'm going against Babylon, and I'm going to be complicit, I'm going to be confederate with Assyria, because there's a bigger enemy that we all hate, and that's Babylon. I'm going up there, stay out of my way. I have come not against you, for God commanded me to make haste. Now, we don't know whether he really did or not. But refrain from meddling with God with who is with me, lest he destroy you. And I think that was, good, that was a good word that he spoke to Josiah, but Josiah didn't listen. Nevertheless, Josiah would not turn his face from him, but disguised himself so that he might fight with him and did not heed the words of Necho from the mouth of God. So he came to fight in the valley of Megiddo. And for those of you who have been to Megiddo in that area, that's the valley of Megiddo is where the valley of Armageddon is, or the Armageddon battle is going to take place in the last days. And let me tell you, it's a crazy place. It's the perfect, even Napoleon said, this is the ultimate battle spot. And that's where this was happening. And that's where the ultimate battle is going to be in the end days. But notice, he would not turn. The archer shot Josiah, verse 23, and the king said to his servants, Take me away, for I am severely wounded. And so his servants therefore took him out of that chariot, put him into a second chariot that he had had, and they brought him to Jerusalem. And so he died and was buried in one of the tombs of his fathers. And all Judah and Jerusalem mourned for Josiah. And Jeremiah also lamented for Josiah. And to this day, all the singing men and the singing women speak of Josiah in their lamentations. And they made it a custom in Israel, and indeed they are written in the laments. Now the rest of the acts of Josiah and his goodness, according to what was written in the law of the Lord, and his deeds from first to last, indeed they are written in the book of the kings of Israel and Judah. And we read that, didn't we? 
In fact, this whole list that you see on the board and behind me on the screen, we looked at the kings, the chronicles of the kings of Judah. Finally, in 2 Kings 23, verse 30, it says, Then his servants moved his body in a chariot, brought him to Jerusalem, buried him in his own tomb, and the people of the land took Jehoiahaz, the son of Josiah, anointed him and made him king in his father's place. Now, unfortunately, Jehoiahaz is only going to be on the throne for about three months. <laughs> but think of what a wonderful reign this man Josiah had and, 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 and the, how blessed the Lord was with him. And it was because he was obedient and he made a foolish error at the end. And do you know that Josiah is in glory? He's in heaven. And he made a mistake. Anybody here make a mistake? Made mistakes? Maybe even today you made a mistake as a believer. Is a mistake going to keep you out of heaven? No. It may make your life troublesome if you make a mistake. But is there a mistake that you can make that's going to keep you out of heaven? The only mistake that you can make that will keep you from heaven is rejecting Christ. Everything else is just life. And anybody here perfect? None of us are. We make mistakes. And don't be discouraged, folks, when you make a mistake. Don't think that God is angry with you, that he no longer loves you because you did something really foolish. You're just going to enter in the long line of people before you, saints that are in heaven right now that have made mistakes. Don't be so hard on yourself. If it's a sin, repent of it and be done with it. And ask God to forgive you. And he'll forgive you. His promise is true. And go on in your Christian walk and, and grow and thrive, right? If we could have the worship team uh, come on up, or Sarah, I guess that's just you and I, isn't it, tonight? The worship team, that's, that's you and me, isn't it? You and I. As we, uh, as we sing this next song of worship, uh, just come on up and grab one of the elements, one of the things, and, um, and bring it back to your chair, and we'll take it together, okay? Lord, we thank you for what these elements represent to us, Lord. And to take communion means to come into agreement and to, Lord, to take into our innermost being those, those things that you gave to your disciples that very night that you were, um, that night that you were taken and arrested, falsely accused, falsely arraigned, falsely crucified. But Lord, that night you took the bread and the cup and the Passover meal and you did something unique that you'd never done before. And you said that this, this is my body broken for you as you took the bread and you passed it out. And Lord, we thank you for the broken body. Lord, the, the punishment that you had bore, even from man, as you hung on that cross. But we know that there was much more that you received on that cross that no man has ever received, and that is the sin of the whole world. Lord, when you made your soul an atonement for our sin. And Lord, so we take this bread in remembrance of the body, your body that was broken on our behalf. Let's partake of that. And immediately following, Jesus took the cup of wine and he passed around that chalice to all of his disciples. 
And he said, take and drink. This is my, the blood of the new covenant, which is given for you. And drink all of it. For, and later on, he, the Apostle Paul would tell us that as we do these things, we remember the Lord's death until he comes. And so let's partake of the cup. Lord, as we have read about Josiah, Lord, and just to see such a young man, Lord, for you to have your way in him, we know that it's, uh, it's good for us to ask the same. And Lord, you're not a respecter of persons. What you could do through the life of Josiah, you can do through us. And so, Lord, we pray that you would do that work in us, Lord. We love you and we thank you and we praise you. In Jesus' name we pray. And everyone said? Amen. Amen. God bless you. Have a great night.